Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to and watching the one-to-one consumer marketing podcast. Today, we have a really special episode that I'm excited to introduce, uh, where we're going to be diving into customer retention and the recent results from our survey with three leaders in the CRM space. Really, really excited for this one. You're in for a treat. Basically, some background. uh, Spectrum recently did a survey uh, called the State of B2C Customer Retention where we surveyed around 300 marketers from around the world. These are professionals on the front lines of retention, kind of the ones that are shaping strategies that keep customers coming back for more. Their responses, their insights, their challenges, all try to provide a really unique view into the workings of customer retention today. So really a huge privilege to have the three of you here. Um, We'll be discussing some of the findings with three experts in their fields. I want to introduce Aaron Bonsang, who is head of own channels at iRobot, Tobias Ludas, who is head of CRM and marketing at Delivery Hero, and Carl Adam Markborn, who is head of CRM at Boy Technology. Aaron, Toby, Carl Adam, thanks so much for joining us today. Thrilled to be here. Nice to be here again. Nice to talk to you again, Ben. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, just a note for all of our listeners, all of these guests have been on previous episodes of the show. So if you want to learn more about what they're doing, uh, their work, uh, the insights that they have previously shared, check out the links to their episodes in the show notes. They all had some really, really great things to say. But without further ado, we're going to dive into basically the structure of the episode, which is we're going to discuss a finding um, from the report. And to kick things off, the first finding is really 86% of the consumer marketers we surveyed today think that customer retention is more important than it was a year ago. So I think that's a big finding that shows that attention is finally being paid to retention, even more so than before. So I guess my first question to you, Aaron, is how has the focus on customer retention shifted over the past year? And what do you think is driving the increase in importance? So I think it actually goes back to some basic principles that we all know here on this call, which is it's far more cost effective to keep an existing customer happy than to buy a new one. And I think when we start to zoom back out and look at the macroeconomic factors that all of us are dealing with, it's becoming more and more costly to acquire a prospect, convert them all the way through your sales funnel, and then keep them happy. So what we've started seeing is we get tailwinds amongst our existing customer install base. And so I think those macro forces have forced us to say, in some channels where it's becoming a lot more expensive to acquire, how do we do a better job at listening to consumer feedback? with the goal of doing better cross-sell and upsell. So it's worth saying consumers have our products for every anywhere from like three to five years. So it's it's a decent amount of time. Consumers typically run their product anywhere from once a day to multiple times a week. Consumers often name their products. So it sort of becomes an extension of their household. So we have a lot of work to do post-purchase to keep those consumers happy and engaged. I think the shift that has happened is to say, When we do that well and we really listen to consumers, we provide them with the right messages at the right time in the right channels that work for them, we see success. And so we're all focused on where do we have tailwinds when we also have headwinds. So I think that's one factor. I think the other factor is consumer expectations. And you talk about this in the report. They just continue to increase. And especially when you're a category like we are, where it's high price point, consumers are really scrutinizing every dollar that they spend right now. And so we have to do slightly less selling with an existing consumer because they're seeing the benefit of the product. 
So an area, for example, where we've seen a decent amount of success is with our accessories business. So there are components with the robot that you buy in order to make sure that you get that full three to five years. And so when we can message that value proposition, sometimes coupled with an offer, we're seeing success. But that expectation and bar of what I'm going to see for that value, that continues to go up. And I think the third, when you're in a category like we are, which is highly competitive, I think there are over 60 plus brands that are playing in the RVC space. You have to look more critically and say, how do I really close that next sale? It's going to be a lot harder with a prospect knowing there's so many other options out there, but it's going to be a little bit easier with an existing customer if I can make sure that I'm personalizing those communications and I'm benefiting them in some way than a prospective customer doesn't know about. So I think there's like a macro view we're all dealing with, and then there's category elements, and then there's specific brand and product elements for us. Yeah, I love that breakdown. And thank you for giving like the three lenses through which to view that, which are both focused on kind of your business, the wider economy, as well as your customers. What about you, Toby? How How is this playing out for you? Do you see a bigger shift towards retention? I definitely see a bigger shift. And I think that I totally agree with everything that Aaron said. So, you know, it just makes sense right now to invest in existing customers. But what I also see, especially in my company, is it's a higher frequency product, right? We didn't have any food. So, you know, we have obviously lower price points. People order more often. And I see that the management is actually getting more interested not only in reactivating customers, but rather also shifting customer behavior. So rather, for example, if people always order on the weekend, like what happens if you force those customers to on a weekday? Or what is if they order lunch, for example, instead of only dinner? Like, can we get this habit into our customers and can we shift our, our customers' behavior. And I think that's super interesting. It also shows that we have the attention and that, you know, people are more interested in the details now, which I, I think is very interesting. Yeah, shifting behaviors, Carl Adam, I think that's something that we we've also talked about before on on your episode where you you mentioned how you segment customers based on their types of transport, whether they're commuting or weekend riders. You know, are you also seeing a, a big shift in getting more out of all of those different segments this year versus last year? Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of change, not only to people's like change behavior, it's more like post pandemic as well. People are moving around more, people are feeling more comfortable with traveling around in Europe a lot more. We see that users that might have used our service previously in just one or two cities in their country, all of a sudden start using our service in a second or third country as well. So making sure that we try to give them a offer when they come to a city where we do exist, where we might have some new local competitors that they've never seen before, making sure that uh, we're top of mind as soon as they start browsing between uh, options. But also I think what uh, Aaron mentioned as well, like macro uh, situation as well, where we are seeing that people who we might have seen were quite indifferent to our pricing models before have become much, much more price sensitive. So. For trying to tailor our price products more uh, to the people who are willing to be returning customers is something that we work a lot in, especially within the CRM space, where we do tailor offers that aren't really like off the shelf for normal users, but are only for returning customers. So it could be different, like bundled strategies that we use uh, to get people to do repeated purchases. Yeah, thank you for that example. I love that example. I also, the reason. I'm so happy that the three of you are here today is I think you will have very similar experiences or like the big themes are the same, but you also have very unique focuses for your product and different kind of types of products as well. So I think the insights that will come from the conversation will be will be great for our listeners. The first question I ask kind of leads naturally to our next finding, 
which I think is why so much attention is being paid to retention now. And that was, you know, we asked people, how big is the revenue contribution of returning customers? And 59% of our survey respondents said that returning customers constitute a quarter to a half of their company's revenue. And 29% said they're between half and three quarters of their company's revenue. So I think probably no surprise to the three of you that CRM and retention is contributing such a huge portion of revenue for the companies. But I'd love to talk a little bit more about this topic. Toby, how are you currently measuring impact on revenue of your retention efforts? And what kind of KPIs are you using to guide your efforts? So in general, we're looking at the incremental GMV, uh, the fully loaded GP and the, the customer lifetime value. Like how much will this customer give us in the future? So also like an outlook on the future of the customer. And in general, if you want to relate this to CRM, then I think we spoke about this in our episode as well, then we usually rely on the global control group. So we just essentially have a set of customers that don't receive any communication from us at all. And we test this versus, uh, you know, the CRM communication that we have. And this gives a clear picture on how much value do we drive for the company and how much does CRM contribute to the company revenue in the end. So yeah, I would encourage everyone to have a campaign control group, but also a global control group to measure their success of CRM. Yeah, I love that. I remember that very well from our episode, uh, that idea of not just the control group from the campaign, but the global group, because I think it takes a certain like total buy-in to the experimentation mindset that you're going to have a, a segment of customers that will never receive any kind of CRM communications from you. So I think it's a very powerful way to test around all of your cohorts and segments. Carl, Adam, what about you? How are, how are you measuring the impact of retention? So what we're looking at is uh, usually a shorter time window of activating users. Uh, we're not trying to like view on uh, a certain campaign impact on a longer time frame, but more looking like uh, on a 7 to 14 days window where we see our impact. And we also use a global control group in most of our actions. We've been having that for quite some time, actually. So we have a lot of behavioral data where we see differences in the non-treated versus treated users. But the main KPI we look at is significant uplift in the rights taken really for one of those users that have received and used an offer uh, during that seven or 14 days window. And I would say that we've been experimenting a lot in where do we find the sweet spot KPIs to track on because it's not really like an e-com or like an average order value. It's, it's just so different when you sell transportation really. So I think that's what the best like how much revenue did we gain from those extra added rides during that one or two week period? Yeah, uh, makes sense. I love also the simplicity. I'm sure the the reality of tracking it and, and everything is very complex, but that your KPI or the main North Star is like uplift in rides is also powerful to keep that so simple when it could go down such a complex road. Aaron, what, what about you? We are a little different, I suppose. So we sell retail and direct. I'm mostly heavily involved in our direct business. So within our direct business, what we do look at is really split of new versus repeat. And that gives us we have an overall goal that we're trying to hit in terms of what percentage of our direct sales are coming from existing customers. And we're seeing a positive trend there. But beyond that, we look at very typical out-of-the-box metrics in terms of we're looking at things like CBR, AOB, but then we are also looking at product mix. So it's not surprising that an existing customer, if you're within that three to five window, you're going to skew higher on an accessories versus a robot just because the price points are different. So we look at that. I think the other piece that we've started to look at is we look at last click, but we also use multi-touch attribution. And that's really important because that helps us really start to better understand the effectiveness of channels within those audiences. If we go just based on last click, 
some of our channels, say like an email, they don't look as strong. But when we move to MTA, we actually find they're working. But oftentimes what's happening is a consumer's coming back just by typing in iRobot.com or they're going through Google search and we're paying for the lead that way. So we're kind of looking at overall mix of new versus repeat, but then we're also looking at MTA to help us understand how are the channels actually working to help us achieve and increase that overall goal. Yeah, thank you for that overview. Uh, Back over to Toby and Carl. Adam, just a question for you. Obviously, you're using control groups where I'm assuming you're dealing with a lot of that attribution by kind of pulling out just the control groups so you're not getting as nitty-gritty into the channels always when you're looking at the higher level. Is kind of last click versus other attribution models something that you're you're playing around with as well when you're looking at your channel performance or just the overall performance of your cohorts? Yeah, for us, it definitely is. It's always a bit tough to measure, right? So we have different models in the past with attribution, like first click, but then last click and so on. But I would definitely agree that numbers look very different. Also, there's always a risk that you over-attribute something to, yep. to a channel, right? So for example, you send a push notification and an email, like whether you attribute it to, you track two orders, for example, and so it's super tough, but it's definitely something you have to do. Otherwise, you might get to the wrong conclusions afterwards. If you, you know, see that emails are not working, then, you know, as I said, Erin, they would just type it in, in, into Google, yeah. like what they usually do, right? Maybe right. they're on their phone, they want, to, they want to buy on the desktop, right? And um, so it makes sense. I'm curious, Carl, Adam, are you guys like working towards a place where you want users to have a certain number of rides, say, per week or per month? Or the same thing with you, Toby, like, is there a threshold? And then do you think of your customers based on certain segments, like a certain type of user, maybe a twice a week user, another maybe a five times a week, and another maybe once a month, and that's okay because everyone uses the products and services differently? Is is that a way to think about it? Is that how you're thinking about it? That's a very good guess, I would say. So what we do is that from like a new uh, user, we set up a goal for when we see that they have become like a repeated purchaser. We call it like five magic rides, for instance, and during like a shorter time frame. But then we have different segments where we like try to move the user. So we have like uh, one and dance, intermediate, yeah. power users. And then we try to move them up the ladder, really. And usually by having a bundled frequency of first, for instance. So like really trying to get people to understand the good use of the product. Like when they have taken five to 10 rides the first 30 days, usually like they're sort of hooked on the product and that is easier to work with them in, in some sense rather than just focusing on like uh, national holidays offers or Black Friday stuff like that, but more like looking in individualized. Yep. And also what we have been doing is we've been working a lot in the onboarding phase with the different types of predictive models. Yes. We get uh, like uh, LTV, based on a number of different traits around their transactions, etc. We don't really know a lot about our users in a classic way of looking at it. We don't know their, their gender. We don't necessarily know their names, actually, in some sense. But just like we just look at all of these different markers that we have on them and their actual behavior. Yeah, yeah, that's great. For us, it's pretty much the same. So yeah. uh, for us, we also treat customs differently depending on the life cycle stage. And I would say the more active you are, we try different things. So for example, we will target you with a refer friend campaign because we would assume that you like the service and it's likely for you to actually, you know, refer friends and then you get a discount this way. But if you, for example, are a churning customer, you are maybe once the lunch, then we can give you a voucher, for example. But we wouldn't necessarily try a voucher first for an active customer, of course, and 
try different things, like try to change the behavior. But if you have to reactivate you, we, we try with like, the easiest boundary, like giving you just a voucher and, you know, yeah. this order, we're fine. You can order the same day. We don't care. Just, just Right, right. And I think the always interesting thing that we probably all face is how successful you are to move people from one cohort to another versus there are some groups where they're going to stay in that cohort, but they're going to be loyal based on that usage in that cohort. And that's good, too. And like understanding those differences, I think, is really fascinating. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Aaron, as far as like really understanding what should you be looking at and what is the right measure of success for those those different groups. I think the discussion you just had speaks a lot to the next question I had was also just to understand uh, based on the revenue contribution that you you have from returning customers, you know, how are you using data and insights to better serve that audience? I think you've already talked to that very well, but is there anything you you want to add based on that question? I think the only thing that I'll add is we're trying to do a better job at social listening voice of the customer because the products are complex. We do have very, very bold consumers on platforms like Reddit, TikTok, Facebook, et cetera. And we are working to improve what are the key themes and challenges that consumers are having with the products. And oftentimes, the more we can go back to those problem statements and identify a friction point. What we're finding is it may not actually be an issue with the product. It may be around how we're explaining a feature. So I'll give a quick example of something that came up last week. I was talking to a partner on our commercial team. We were talking about reviews on one of the products and we wanted to make them better. And so we were looking at the customer themes on those customers who gave us a lower score. And the issue always was is that the machine kept getting stuck. And so we did like a deep dive with our care team to understand like, well, was there an issue with this product and getting stuck? And What we discovered is the way that we were instructing consumers to avoid the product getting stuck because we actually have the feature for it wasn't comprehensive enough and it was going over people's heads. And so then what was happening is they weren't leveraging the feature and then they were they were giving us constructive, albeit negative feedback in the review about the overall product. So those are just some examples where it's like what is on the surface may not actually be what's below. And we went down one path around like, do we have a product issue? We didn't. We actually had more of a user experience issue. We're trying to do more and more of that because the more that we can just make the experience easier for consumers, we're seeing that loyalty. We're also seeing that increase in terms of purchase rate. We encounter a lot of similar issues, actually, yeah. uh, since our product is, they differ from city to city, really, on based on like local regulations, like parking rules, et cetera. So... We, it could be like a city council have implemented a new legislation and we need to totally change how the product works. And then we can see mm-hmm. like a, a massive drop in usage. And usually that's like our version of getting uh, the robot stock. Yeah. So then we have to like, okay, instead of talking about the re- retention of uh, like how many rides have you taken, like identifying this specific cohort to stop riding because we have in parking rules and seeing like, okay, let's not just focus on like the pricing is probably not the pain point here. Right. How can we educate the user and make sure that we also, in those specific cities, add that to the onboarding as well? Yes. Uh, so, uh, because people can get really, really frustrated, like when you're trying to park a scooter and it's like technically impossible for you because you have no idea that you need to park in a certain space, yes. uh, which the city hasn't told you. I think for any of our products, onboarding truly then can make or break the experience because you're trying to teach people a new behavior. And what we've discovered is if we don't set people up for success out of the gate, they get frustrated. They just get frustrated and then they either stop using the product or, you know, they're less likely to purchase again. It's just it's not meeting their expectations. 
So I love that. You, I love the way, Carl, and you're talking about onboarding, because I think that's often like an unsung hero when it comes to CRM. Like it's not sexy. It's not a cool ad, but it's super, super important because you're getting people at a time where they're excited. Whatever the experience is, they're excited. It's something new and different. But if it becomes too hard, their threshold to keep going is pretty low. Yeah, I think we've been experimenting yeah. a lot with the onboarding there, like you said, uh, making sure that that's really like geographically uh, differentiated based on the, the local stuff. Like in Southern Europe, some of the banks, they do like this pre-off when you, you, you buy a ride. In Southern okay. Europe, they keep the money for a little bit longer than they do in Northern Europe, for instance. So users can get frustrated with not getting their money back after 48 hours. It takes three or four days, but just explaining that and like, we're not trying to rob you of anything right. because we're like, this is what's going on here. Yeah. And making sure that it, when they know that from the beginning, they don't get as frustrated, right. then they feel that uh, everything is just fine. So I think there's a lot of things to do in onboarding that might not drive your number one KPI directly, right. but it will build the quality in your relationship for a long period. Yeah, I love that you ended on that note, particularly Carl Adam, because what I'm hearing from the three of you as you kind of talk through this is also the importance of the relationship, right? This is a long-term relationship that you're building. And so how do you nurture that? Also, how do you identify what the real pain is, right? Like you said, Aaron, it might not be the pain that you see on the surface, like there could be something underlying and then you tailor your strategy accordingly. That leads also a little bit into our next finding, which was that, you know, you mentioned uh, social, Aaron, as a way for mining feedback beyond uh, just your app. We're seeing, you know, the marketers we surveyed said that social media is actually like a top channel for customer retention, and they've seen email decline the most. So I think this is really interesting because I know I've spoken to the three of you and email is obviously a workhorse for a CRM. So I'd, I'd love to dig into this a little bit. Can we uh, start with you, Carl Adam? You know, which channels have you seen decline and what do you think are some of the, the reasons for that downturn? I think email definitely has been declining the past few years, not only at the uh, Void, but in, in general. And I think it has a lot to do with just being overused and abused by so many different companies that it's really, really hard to stand out. However, the users that do respond and engage with you on email, if you manage to isolate them and continue to use email on them, might actually be quite more successful than push notifications. Because push notifications is like the new email in uh, overuse and abuse in some sense. People are really, really doing a lot of push messages. And I think that what we've seen is having a like multi-channel strategy for every campaign and that has been really successful, but not using every channel on every customer, but making sure that one customer gets one specific channel. We don't really do that much in social in regards of campaigns towards users or paid content in social. But what we do is more relation building and reusing that relation building from social channels, such as city guides or like smaller contents and trying to repost them in our own channels in CRM, such as email or in-app messages and getting users engagement that way, rather than just basically sending a lot of discount codes, which would just lower revenue in general. And it's too hard to segment down on the users in social, really, to be honest. So trying to have that as like a, an emotional and bond building channel instead of reusing that in our own channels has been our success recipe so far. 
Yeah, we were just talking about educational content via CRM, right? So I think that email is like the perfect channel for that. You can always give like a step-by-step guide. The email stays in your inbox, right? So you can also revisit it afterwards and you can reach people that don't even have your app, right? So I think we also saw a decline in email, but there's still a purpose in emails. I think the most important part is just that you need to provide some sort of value to the customer, uh, being it like a discount or a voucher or being it informational, being it educational about your product and addressing something that could be important for your customer. Yeah, I think in general though that, yeah, email is a bit overused. So you really have to make sure that you have a good email design and maybe use sort of the newer features, right? You use this like deal feature, for example, for the, the for, for Gmail, for example. So there are ways to make uh, your email more, more entertaining essentially, because I think that's what everyone's looking forward nowadays for entertainment. So they don't want to see just information. They rather want to have it in a TikTok way. So like, you know, make it fun or make it approachable. I like that. Make it fun, make it approachable. I think in terms of organic social for us, I think what we're seeing more and more of, especially on TikTok, is consumers are now using TikTok as like an organic search engine is what I'm starting to see. And even I as a consumer, I'm starting to use it that way. I think what we tend to see on social is sort of two ends of the spectrum. There's brand love and engagement with existing customers, and there's certainly activity that's happening there. In terms of an actual sales channel, based on our data, we don't see that as much. I think it's more of just an engagement channel, which makes sense. I think when it comes to email, I would completely echo Carl Adam and Toby's sentiment. Like Too often, email is used and abused for like, we got an offer, like let's send it out. And consumers are completely aware of that. I think where I see everything going is multi-channel, but integrated. So it's like where we see success is when app and email work together because consumers may not go into an app every day, but they are checking their email every day. And I think to Toby's point, it's like, it's got to be benefit driven. Like give me, there's a value exchange that needs to occur there in order for me to want to engage with that content. So I guess I would say like, is email on the decline for us? No, I wouldn't say that it is. But I think there are certainly opportunities that we have to improve with email in terms of it being benefit driven and then works with other channels so that it's a more cohesive message. Yes, that speaks to my follow up question then. And if I'm hearing you correctly, all three of you kind of what you've done is shift probably more towards orchestration, right? Towards like a unified vision of your customer and interacting with them across those channels. Would that be fair to say, Toby, is that what you're doing? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you have to be where your customers are. But then on the other side, I think that sometimes it's even better to be where they don't expect you. So like one example would be, and I know in the report, it didn't got a bunch of love, but a direct marketing, offline marketing. I think people always think my customer base is young. They, don't, they are not open to receive letters or something from all promotions. But then if you look at social media, the attention span is super short. You have like two seconds to actually give your message across. But then if you go to direct marketing, for example, you send them a letter and they, you know, they find it in the inbox and not many people are doing it at the moment. You actually get the attention of it because no one is doing it and they take it home and then they, you know, actually have some time to, to convey a message. So I think be where your customers are for sure. Like you have to know your customer, but sometimes it's also good to, you know, surprise them and be where they don't expect you. That would be like my key message. I would love your thoughts on that, Aaron, because I think direct mail is something that is much more widely used in the U.S. versus in Europe. Is that something that you also have seen any success with at iRobot? It's not a channel that we focused on heavily. I can tell you it's one that we are doing, have done some testing in. Don't know performance at this point. I think, though, what I've seen here in the U.S. is a lot of D2C only brands have leaned really heavy into direct mail, benefit driven, you know, high, high quality print materials and stories. 
I think there is a place there for sure. But I think it goes back to what Toby said, which is like, entertain me. Give me a value exchange. Make it interesting. I mean, I think for myself, the brands that I'm seeing doing really well in email, they're just taking like a known topic, but they're putting kind of their spin on it. And the spin could be as simple as tone. I think tone can go such a long way. If brands can sound more like people, they just seem more human. And brands that are able to do that and do that well make their experiences more memorable. It's not always that you have to have some huge creative execution. It's more around how do you make it feel authentic to what you're doing? Yeah. And as you kind of navigate how to be more authentic, like which channel to reach your customers on, right? Like the, the right moment to engage them. What are some of the biggest challenges that you're, you're coming across right now? I think time and place matters. So I think about onboarding. Onboarding is not the place to make jokes, be funny. Like people want to figure out how to use the product. So it's very educational. It's very direct. It's very like, let's get you set up and moved on. But if we want to talk to you about your robot's birthday, there we can have some fun. So I think it's just finding those times and places. And it really needs to be based on what is the mindset of a user as they're making this purchase pre, during, and post, and then aligning the comms to it. Yeah, Carl Adam, that reminds me of our conversation in the episode where you talked about the vehicle itself being your primary acquisition channel and then having like a very educational approach to onboarding. Is that, do you, would you echo what Aaron said in terms of onboarding being a very kind of education-focused touchpoint? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we as a company also have a responsibility in the city where we operate that we have vehicles out in the street that people know how to use them and they follow the rules uh, in each specific city. But I, I really think what Aaron was talking about in regards of tonality and tone of voice with the user is that there is a certain time to be funny and there is a certain time to be serious, etc. And uh, I think that we've been working a lot with finding and identifying data points where users get hiccups or like they have issues with our product. We might never really know exactly what has happened to them, but we know that they only took a ride that lasted for 75 seconds. Okay, that is a marker that something has happened. Can we see which was the average speed there? Okay, we probably have some idea here. Okay, then let's now we can start to automate things based on this and use uh, CRM uh, as a channel uh, to, to send them a push notification if the app isn't open and say, hey, we apologize for your hiccup here. Take a ride the next week, it's on us, for instance. Like those types of, uh, and there you can be funny and you can talk about it in a semi funny way, but it could also be that something has happened to them. Then they hit the curb side and they fell over or something. So you have to like, be really careful with tone of voice and not to joke about things too much, really, while being perceived as uh, a friend as well. I think for this topic, there's also, there are some apps, uh, I'm not sure if you know it, but Carrot Weather, for example, where you can actually change the tone that you want to be talked with. So it, it's like a weather app, it essentially just uh, shows you the weather, but uh, you can change the tonality that you prefer. So I think it's also quite fun. Uh, it's only eight apps, so they're not sending push notifications uh, oh. or, or emails, but it's uh, it's quite interesting. I think there could be something for the future that you can use, like how should this app talk to me? Maybe. That's really neat. Yeah. yeah, so it's the yeah. consumer really like uh, next step uh, before you could only like opt out of comms. Now you can, in a lot of places, opt down, but then like opt tonality as well would be amazing. Yeah, I love that example. And I agree, Carl Adam, it must be 
you probably have to be even more careful than Aaron to some extent because, you know, Aaron's robot might bump into someone's couch. But if, you know, someone bumps into someone else on the road, it's a very different, different kind of situation. You know, I think everything that we're speaking about right now speaks a lot about customer expectations, right? How do they think about interacting with brands? Uh, how do they want to interact with brands? And a finding in the report was that 63% of retention marketers say it's a, a major challenge to manage all of those customer expectations. You know, what is creating the biggest challenges for you? And, and has that changed over time? What about you, Aaron? Let's start, start with you. I think the biggest challenge for us that has and probably will continue to be is it's a robot. So when people are purchasing a robot, there are inherent expectations that a robot is going to be able to do this better than a human. And a lot of it then comes down to it's a high price point product. It's one you use frequently is a robot, but it does need guidance. And so managing those expectations, we do have some consumers, I think they think, oh, I bought a robot and I'm done. I'm never gonna have to do anything. And so part of, I think the opportunity is it is a slightly different mental model to think about using one of our products versus a, a broom or a traditional upright vacuum. Like the way that you use the product and set the product up is really different. And the products really do get smarter over time and customized to your house, but they need some guidance in the upfront. And so some of what we've tried to manage is if you go into it thinking, I'm going to buy this product, I'm not going to need to touch it. I don't have to worry about it. It's a robot and my floors will never need to be touched ever again. And I will never need to have any engagement. It's probably good. There's going to be levels of a mismatch. So some of it is, is that's why the onboarding is so important. We need to teach you new habits on how to think about cleaning your floors that you've never had before, ever, and get you into a new habit. And it takes 30 days to form a habit. So I think that's where we find like, we don't nail that correctly in the first 30 days. Our ability to generate LTV is a lot harder because there's just a mismatch in what I thought a robot could do versus a human versus the robot can do those things, but it needs to be taught over time with some guidance from you. Yeah. Is that something that you're also seeing, uh, Toby? Obviously, you're not teaching people how to use the robots necessarily, but maybe that mismatch between expectations and reality or the the journey that they have to go on to really start using your product and growing revenue for you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we definitely see that people have really high expectations when it comes to their, their food delivery, right? Like the food should be at the, at the best quality. It should arrive like, more or less immediately because people are hungry. So expectations are really high. And the only thing that you can really do is it's a big challenge and it's usually out of our hands because we are depending on the restaurant partners, for example. So we have limited control over those. But what we can obviously do is uh, we can educate people, okay, when is food going to arrive? And we have it on the tracking page, of course, the product, but we also try to support this with push notifications and tell them, hey, like, it's not that long until, you know, you're going to get your food and try to be as accurate as possible and giving as much context as possible. So, for example, if the order got declined, then we try to give you a reason why it got declined. Because maybe there's too much traffic, maybe there was an accident. So there are many reasons. And usually it helps if you can give a bit of context instead of just saying, yeah, your order got cancelled because that doesn't really, doesn't really help anyone. Yeah, would it be fair to say that there's also, you know, as you are kind of building that relationship with the customer, it's like what they might value the most is transparent communication and very direct communication with them versus, you know, just always expecting the best, you know, right? Are we shifting from a state where brands have to be more direct and honest with their customers just because of how high expectations are? How does that play out for you, Carl Adam? I feel that we have gotten a lot of media scrutiny on our business all over Europe, which has forced us to be very, very transparent to all our users. 
in regards to everything, how we operate our core business in like our warehouses, uh, how we charge our vehicles, how we recycle batteries, et cetera, et cetera. And having all of that information easily available for users in their onboarding, but also during their like lifetime with us really uh, is kind of crucial because there are so many different factors that we have absolutely no idea about that users do put a lot of emphasis on for their own usage of our product. But I think what we faced a few years back was that we basically, we had like one standard product and then we moved into a new city. Okay. We tweak it a little bit, but then we had all the tweaks that we do are like backend stuff that the user will never see. But then for us working with CRM is that we're going to convey this message to every uh, user in all specific cities. And we have almost 80 cities with different rules and regulations. When the micromobility started, it was kind of like plain vanilla. Everybody had the same rules, i.e. no rules. But now we have so many different rules and regulations, and there's so many different flavors of potential issues with the users. For instance, in the United Kingdom, they have a much higher demand from the government to scan and upload your driver's license just to ride a scooter, for instance. Now we need to be super transparent with users from the first beginning when they start using that. Otherwise, they get super disappointed because they didn't bring their wallet with the driver's license, et cetera, et cetera. So just trying to navigate, finding all the bottlenecks for the user and making sure like, okay, trying to test them as well. And it doesn't have to be uh, extremely large group tests, but just seeing that, okay, we know that in this specific city in the UK, we do have an issue with this certain uh, problem. And then we're just trying to be very transparent with that from the beginning with the new users. And usually what we see is that we do get an uplift in rides taken by being very, very transparent. Yeah, thank you for sharing uh, those specific examples. Erin, did you have something to add? I would echo everything Carl Adams said. I think the only additional piece I would have is don't underestimate the importance of empathy. We all have products that they go wrong from one time to another. The difference from that being a negative perception of the brand is feeling like you have a partner in the company to help you when you run into those issues. I remember about a year ago, I had an issue with my iPhone and I had interacted with Apple in every single channel. I'd done chat. I went into the store. I did email via phone. And every person that I interacted with, the first thing he said was, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. This is so frustrating. I'm going to try to do whatever I can to make it better. And just those three sentences, they de-escalated things so quickly. And I think the importance of empathy and just recognizing that consumers don't want friction in their experience. You don't want them to have friction in their experience. You might not have an answer. And to Carl Adams' point, like there are some things that are just out of your control. But the more that the user feels like you're their partner and you're going to try to do the best that you can to figure it out, that goes such a long way. And I think when we've been able to like turn a negative into a positive through like certainly solutions driven in empathy, that increases LTV because what the customer remembers was like, yeah, I was pretty angry. I had a problem, but they listened to me and they helped me figure it out. They feel human now. They don't feel like a corporation. They feel like they're people like me and they want to help me figure out this problem. I now have an ally. That's so, so important. Yeah, I agree. I think that speaks again to really the fact that you're all in the business of building relationships, right? And empathy is a key part of building relationships and transparency is a key part of doing that well. So I think shifting, you know, to that mindset of, okay, a pain is not always a, a massive problem. It can be an opportunity to actually build a relationship to it is a very good way to look at it. Maybe shifting away from the customer side more towards 
the back end, the gritty day-to-day of what you're doing in CRM uh, and all that relationship building. One of the findings from our survey was that 90% of marketers say their retention uh, technology is generating a positive ROI. And 65% of them are using between 6 and 15 tools and their retention technology stack. So I think it's a place that has a lot of tech, a lot of integrations, but where people are seeing a lot of value. Starting with, with you, Toby, can you maybe share some of the tools or technologies that you've seen be the most impactful in customer retention? I'm calling on you also because I remember you saying you did 17 CRM migrations and I'm still scared just just remembering that. Yeah. So first of all, I'm not really surprised by the findings, right? I think that, you know, if 90% say that they have a positive ROI, I think it's always good to invest into retention. I think it's always going to pay out in the end. Between six and 15 tools, that's quite a lot of CRM. Uh, we are uh, at Delivery Hero mostly work with Brace as a partner. So we do like all the orchestration via Brace and then use Tableau, obviously, for insights. Looker, if you want to know, do like some something quick and dirty and and yeah, most of the time though, we uh, rely our data science team. So they figure out everything that we need. And if we have a specific question, then they're going to uh, have an answer for us. This, this might not be, you know, a big chance for like a smaller company, right? They might rely on a tool that, you know, makes it easy and maybe makes it a bit more visual and so on. So I, I would say that this is one of the benefits of working in a, in a large corporation where you just have big teams that can provide a lot of data without using a tool, right? Because I think many tools nowadays, they have a cool reorder probability scores, for example, but if you can build it in-house, it's always going to be a bit more accurate than what the tool is going to provide you. So I think it depends on the options you have, essentially. Yeah. What about you, Carl Adam? I know you've mentioned uh, working with probabilistic models before. What does your tech stack look like? And do you have teams that do some of the work as well? I think we're kind of similar to Toby, actually. We work with the bridge for all our orchestration. We uh, review and analyze everything in uh, Tableau. And then for like quick and dirty stuff, we use MetaBase. We also leverage a, like an add-on product from Brace, which is a, a direct integration to our Snowflake data warehouse, which we are using to run a lot of uh, data science models on. But we have a very strong data science team with really good data analysts that are helping us a lot with like the models building, but also like analyzing things that are a bit more out of the box than what you might get from the normal like marketing automation suppliers. And I think most of the things that they have been supporting us with, I don't think that it might be so easy for a smaller company to do that from day one. But I think if you start to look at the like different data points you have on the users in your uh, data warehouse and those like bespoke models are going to be way much more efficient than uh, running the, the things that are the base package you might get from a supplier. Yeah. And what about you, Aaron? Would you echo that? Or do you have a, a smaller tech stack than the, the finding suggests? And uh, uh, We do. We yeah. do. I mean, we are a big partner with Salesforce. So a lot of our marketing and sales run through their, their ecosystem. So I think we leverage a lot of their clouds and it's probably a little bit more simplistic. We definitely don't have that many tools. That being said, I think what I'm still yearning for and it's like something we all want is like truly a unified view of our customer. And that's something that I think we're still not quite there yet. Um, so certainly that's something that I that I yearn for. I think when I saw this question, the biggest thing that came up to mind for me is in conversations that I've had with marketers around technology, and I at certain points been guilty of it, this is like, what problem is the technology solving? Because too often I hear like, I need this technology because of this. And often I'm like, yeah, but 
what's the strategy around that technology? Like, don't buy a tool in lieu of a strategy because you're still going to have the same problem. And there are so many providers out there that are basically saying, like, we're going to help you with your strategy if you just buy this tool. And by and large, what I've seen is like, that's just not true. So I think you got to like always go back to like, what problem is it solving for? How does it play back to the overall strategy? And then make sure the features that a lot of companies market in these tools that sound so sexy at the outset, oftentimes you don't use them. So it's like really weighing like, what do I need to run my business? Where are the areas that I can improve? And then there's all these shiny new toys that sound awesome, but they might not apply to your business. And just keep that in mind as you're making decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very easy to buy into the fact that the tool is going to solve everything without doing the harder work of the marketing fundamentals that underlie the tool. Yeah, yeah it's definitely with the proliferation of technology that will get harder, not necessarily easier for marketers. And yeah. I think, you know, that leads to our, our final question. I know we're, we're running low on time and I really appreciate the three of you being here. So we can keep this one short, but, you know, what is the future of customer retention for you? In Endeavor, I think we're going to get access to more channels. I think that, you know, uh, talking about uh, social media, for example, I think that's definitely a channel in the future that we will leverage more in CRM. Then I think there's going to be stricter data protection. So we're going to rely more on CRM compared to performance marketing, um, more on first-party data. And then I think that CRM is going to move closer to product. And I think that CRM managers also need to be aware, you know, of what's happening in the product and orchestrate the CRM communication based on what people see anyways in the app. Then I think that we're going to get more budget in the future. So I think that, you know, uh, the, the shift towards uh, retention is going to, going to be even higher in the future, hopefully. And then maybe one statement to AI, uh, because everyone's uh, a bit afraid of AI taking everyone's job. So I don't think AI is going to replace your analogies, but rather it's going to change the way they work. So I think that's going to be a big change in the, the, the work environment. Yeah, all very, very good points. Is there anything that you would want to add to that, Carl Adam? I think that the issues that we're going to see with more and more regulations on uh, user data is going to impact our work a lot more. I mean, uh, there's things that we can do right now that might not be accessible for us as well as CRM marketers, like sharing uh, first-party data with the social media networks, unless we have like different type of specific add-ons, opt-ins, etc. But I think like moving away from the traditional channels where you do one-to-many communications and tapping into one-to-one communications with users using the channels where they are and where they are comfortable being communicated to and giving them the opportunity to setting the frequency and the pace and the topic on everything. An example would be uh, a company like ourselves. We communicate to our user not by a push necessarily, but through Snapchat where they have all their uh, ongoing dialogue with their friends. And we have uh, committed to not uh, sending more than three messages per month, and they only want to see, uh, receive promotions or things that would impact our service, for instance. So I think that, that that would be more of a future where the company you want to be communicated with the same person than not uh, just a, a anonymous company. I think I would plus one to what uh, Toby and Carl Adam are saying. The only other two things I'll add is like, Omnichannel will become a table stake. It's kind of already is, but not everyone's doing it. And then I think the other element is people just want to be entertained so that brands that can do a good job at truly like surprise and delight, but more just core entertaining and treat brands as personalities will win. Yeah, I love that vision. I think, you know, you've all mentioned it before as well, but kind of zero 
and first party data. That's really the core of what you're doing in CRM as well. And building, building the relationship with your customers, managing the opt-ins, it's going to get, you know, it might change. Like Toby said, you know, the AI might change how we do the type of work we do, uh, but it's not going to change the marketing fundamentals of what we do or how we build relationships. So I think there is a very bright future for all three of you uh, and the work that you're doing. And I really appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your day to come talk to us here at Spectrum on the podcast to review uh, the findings from our report. It's really uh, all we have time for today. But again, really, thank you so much for your insights. I want to remind everyone to download a full copy of the Spectrum State of B2C Customer Retention Report. We'll link it in the show notes. But before we sign off, you know, just huge thank you to all of you. If our audience wants to get in touch, where should they go? Aaron, can you send the best place for our listeners to get in touch with you? Sure, LinkedIn. Okay. Would that be the same for, for all three of you, I'm assuming, right? So yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Yeah, LinkedIn. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you, all three of you. And I Thank hope you so have much. a great rest of your day. Take care. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.